0: chapter 8 of john stuart mill his life and works this LibriVox recording is in the public domain john stuart mill his life and works his work in political economy by j e cairns the task of fairly estimating the value of mr mill's achievements in political economy and indeed the same remark applies to what he has done in every department of philosophy is rendered particularly difficult by a circumstance which constitutes their principal merit. The character of his intellectual, no less than of his moral nature, led him to strive to connect his thoughts, whatever was the branch of knowledge at which he laboured, with the previously existing body of speculation, to fit them into the same framework, and exhibit them as parts of the same scheme. So that it might be truly said of him, that he was at more pains to conceal the originality and independent value of his contributions to the stock of knowledge than most writers are to set forth those qualities in their compositions. As a consequence of this, hasty readers of his works, while recognizing the comprehensiveness of his mind, have sometimes denied its originality, and in political economy in particular he has been frequently represented as little more than an expositor, and popularizer of Ricardo, it cannot be denied that there is a show of truth in this representation about as much as there would be in asserting that Laplace and Herschel were the expositors and popularizers of Newton, or that Faraday performed a like office for Sir Humphrey Davy. In truth, this is an incident of all progressive science. The cultivators in each age may in a sense. Be said to be the interpreters and popularizers of those who have preceded them, and it is in this sense, and in this sense only, that this part can be attributed to Mill. In this respect it is to be strongly contrasted with the great majority of writers on political economy, who, on the strength perhaps of a verbal correction or an unimportant qualification of a received doctrine, if not on the score of pure fallacy, would fain persuade us that they have achieved a revolution in economic doctrine, and that the entire science must be rebuilt from its foundation in conformity with their scheme. This sort of thing has done infinite mischief to the progress of economic science, and one of Mill's great merits is, that both by example and by precept he steadily discountenanced it. His anxiety to affiliate his own speculations to those of his predecessors, is a marked feature in all his philosophical works, and illustrates at once the modesty and comprehensiveness of his mind. It is quite true that Mill, as an economist, was largely indebted to Ricardo, and he has so fully and frequently acknowledged the debt that there is some danger of rating the obligation too highly. As he himself used to put it, Ricardo supplied the backbone of the science. But it is not less certain that the limbs, the joints, the muscular developments, all that renders political economy a complete and organized body of knowledge, have been the work of Mill. In Ricardo's great work, the fundamental doctrines of production distribution and exchange have been laid down, but for the most part in mere outline, so much so that superficial students are in general wholly unable to connect his statement of principles with the facts, as we find them, of industrial life. Hence we have innumerable refutations of Ricardo—almost invariably refutations of the writer's own misconceptions. In Mill's exposition the connection between principles and facts becomes clear and intelligible. The conditions and modes of action are exhibited by which human wants and desires, the motive powers of industry, come to issue in the actual phenomena of wealth, AND POLITICAL ECONOMY BECOMES A SYSTEM OF DOCTRINES SUSCEPTIBLE OF DIRECT APPLICATION TO HUMAN AFFAIRS. AS AN EXAMPLE, I MAY REFER TO MILL'S DEVELOPMENT OF RICARDO'S DOCTRINE OF FOREIGN TRADE. IN RICARDO'S PAGES THE FUNDAMENTAL PRINCIPLES OF THAT DEPARTMENT OF EXCHANGE ARE INDEED LAID DOWN WITH A MASTER'S HAND. BUT FOR THE MAJORITY OF READERS THEY HAVE LITTLE RELATION TO THE ACTUAL COMMERCE OF THE WORLD. TURN TO MILL AND ALL BECOMES CLEAR. Principles of the most abstract kind are translated into concrete language and brought to explain familiar facts And this result is achieved not simply or chiefly by virtue of mere lucidity of exposition But through the discovery and exhibition of modifying conditions and links in the chain of causes overlooked by Ricardo it was in his essays on unsettled questions in political economy that his views upon this subject were first given to the world a work of which m chebreuil of geneva speaks as un travail le plus important est le plus original dont la science économique se soit enrichie depuis une vingtaine d'années on some points however and these points of supreme importance The contributions of Mill to economic science are very much more than developments, even though we understand that term in its largest sense, of any previous writer. No one can have studied political economy in the works of its earlier cultivators without being struck with the dreariness of the outlook which, in the main, it discloses for the human race. It seems to have been Ricardo's deliberate opinion that a substantial improvement in the condition of the mass of mankind was impossible. He considered it, as the normal state of things, that wages should be at the minimum requisite to support the laborer in physical health and strength, and to enable him to bring up a family large enough to supply the wants of the labor market. A temporary improvement, indeed, as the consequence of expanding commerce and growing capital, he saw that there might be. But he held that the force of the principle of population was always powerful enough so to augment the supply of labor as to bring wages ever again down to the minimum point so completely had this belief become a fixed idea in ricardo's mind that he confidently drew from it the consequence that in no case could taxation fall on the laborer since living as a normal state of things on the lowest possible stipend adequate to maintain him and his family he would inevitably he argued transfer the burden to his employer and a tax nominally on wages would in the result become invariably a tax upon profits. On this point Mill's doctrine leads to conclusions directly opposed to Ricardo's, and to those of most preceding economists, and it will illustrate his position as a thinker in relation to them if we note how this result was obtained. Mill neither denied the premises nor disputed the logic of Ricardo's argument. He accepted both and in particular he recognized fully the force of the principle of population. But he took account of a further premise which Ricardo had overlooked, and which, duly weighed, led to a reversal of Ricardo's conclusion. The minimum of wages, even such as it exists in the case of the worst-paid laborer, is not the very least sum that human nature can subsist upon. It is something more than this. In the case of all above the worst paid class it is decidedly more. The minimum is, in truth, not a physical but a moral minimum, and as such is capable of being altered with the changes in the moral character of those whom it affects. In a word, each class has a certain standard of comfort below which it will not consent to live, or at least to multiply a standard however not fixed but liable to modification with the changing circumstances of society and which in the case of a progressive community is in point of fact constantly rising as moral and intellectual influences are brought more and more effectually to bear on the masses of the people this was the new premise brought by mill to the elucidation of the wages question and it sufficed to change the entire aspect of human life regarded from the point of view of political economy. The practical deductions made from it were set forth in the celebrated chapter on the future of the industrial classes, a chapter which it is no exaggeration to say places a gulf between Mill and all who preceded him, and opens an entirely new vista to economic speculation. The doctrine of the science with which Mill's name has been most prominently associated within the last few years is that which relates to the economic nature of land, and the consequences to which this should lead in practical legislation. It is very commonly believed that on this point Mill has started aside from the beaten highway of economic thought, and propounded views wholly at variance with those generally entertained by orthodox economists. No economist need be told that this is an entire mistake. In truth, there is no portion of the economic field in which Mill's originality is less conspicuous than in that which deals with the land. His assertion of the peculiar nature of landed property, and again his doctrine as to the unearned increment of value arising from land with the growth of society, are simply direct deductions from Ricardo's theory of rent and cannot be consistently denied by any one who accepts that theory all that mill has done here has been to point the application of principles all but universally accepted to the practical affairs of life this is not the place to consider how far the plan proposed by him for this purpose is susceptible of practical realization but it may at least be confidently stated that the scientific basis on which his proposal rests is no strange novelty invented by him, but simply a principle as fundamental and widely recognized as any within the range of the science of which it forms a part. I have just remarked that Mill's originality is less conspicuous in relation to the economic theory of land than in other problems of political economy, but the reader must not understand me from this to say that he has not very largely contributed to the elucidation of this topic. He has indeed done so, though not, as is commonly supposed, by setting aside principles established by his predecessors, but, as his manner was, while accepting those principles by introducing a new premise into the argument. The new premise introduced in this case was the influence of custom as modifying the action of competition. The existence of an active competition on the one hand between farmers seeking farms on the other between farming and other modes of industry as offering inducements to the investment of capital is a constant assumption in the reasoning by which ricardo arrived at his theory of rent granting this assumption it followed that farmers as a rule would pay neither higher nor lower rents than would leave them in possession of the average profits on their capital current in the country mill fully acknowledged the force of this reasoning and accepted the conclusion as true wherever the conditions assumed were realized. But he proceeded to point out that, in point of fact, the conditions are not realized over the greater portion of the world, and, as a consequence, that the rent actually paid by the cultivators to the owners of the soil by no means, as a general rule, corresponds with that portion of the produce which Ricardo considered as properly rent the real regulator of actual rent over the greater part of the habitable globe was he showed not competition but custom and he further pointed out that there are countries in which the actual rent paid by the cultivators is governed neither by the causes set forth by ricardo nor yet by custom but by a third cause different from either the absolute will of the owners of the soil controlled only by the physical exigencies of the cultivator or by the fear of his vengeance if disturbed in his holding. The recognition of this state of things threw an entirely new light over the whole problem of a land tenure, and plainly furnished grounds for legislative interference in the contracts between landlords and tenants. Its application to Ireland was obvious, and Mill himself, as the world knows, did not hesitate to urge the application with all the energy and enthusiasm which he invariably threw into every cause that he espoused. In the above remarks, I have attempted to indicate briefly some few of the salient features in Mill's contributions to the science of political economy. There is still one more which ought not to be omitted from even the most meagre summary. Mill was not the first to treat political economy as a science. But he was the first, if not to perceive, at least to enforce the lesson, that, just because it is a science, its conclusions carried with them no obligatory force with reference to human conduct. As a science, it tells us that certain modes of action lead to certain results, but it remains for each man to judge the value of the results thus brought about, and to decide whether or not it is worth while to adopt the means necessary for their attainment. In the writings of the economists who preceded Mill, it is very generally assumed that to prove that a certain course of conduct tends to the most rapid increase of wealth suffices to entail upon all who accept the argument the obligation of adopting the course which leads to this result. Mill absolutely repudiated this inference, and while accepting the theoretic conclusion, held himself perfectly free to adopt in practice whatever course he preferred, It was not for political economy or for any science to say what are the ends most worthy of being pursued by human beings. The task of science is complete when it shows us the means by which the ends may be attained. But it is for each individual man to decide how far the end is desirable, at the cost which its attainment involves. In a word, the sciences should be our servants, and not our masters. This was a lesson which Mill was the first to enforce, and by enforcing which he may be said to have emancipated economists from the thraldom of their own teaching. It is in no slight degree, through the constant recognition of its truth, that he has been enabled to divest of repulsiveness even the most abstract speculations, and to impart a glow of human interest to all that he has touched. End of chapter 8 Recording by Bill Borst